begin to collect the offering. I'm going to ask you to grab your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 18. But before I go any further, let's give it up for the worship band from Lincoln Christian University. That was great. I've lived a, lived a sheltered life, I've got to let you know that, but I've never seen someone play the guitar, beat the drum, and sing at the same time. That's pretty impressive. Good job. We're really glad that they were able to come over today and lead worship, and they're going to be at Little Galilee all week with the Junior High Week of Camp. Those of you that served last year at Little Galilee during our week of camp, Clint Mustaine was on our faculty. He is now the dean. He's the youth minister at uh, Minear Christian Church, and he's going to be leading camp this week. We pray that great things continue to happen in the name of the Lord at Little Galilee Camp. I want to say a word about Cody Monkman. I don't know if he's in here or not, but Cody's been with us full-time since mid-May, has done an outstanding job as our ministry staff assistant this summer. That basically means when myself or Adam or Jim sees something that needs to be done, we say, Cody, will you go do this? And he has done an awesome job. He is preaching next week and I really want to break a trend. We have a trend around here that I really hate, I've got to be honest with you. And I know you're not supposed to hate, but I hate this trend. And the trend is when um, Adam or Cody or when Ernie was here, Ernie preaches, it seems like our attendance is way down. I would love to just blow that up. I'd love to see 700 people here next Sunday to really encourage Cody. He's done so much for us this summer. He's leaving us two weeks from today to relocate to the Chicago suburbs where he will be doing a semester of student teaching. And you're going to have an opportunity to express your appreciation two weeks from today when we take up a love offering to really encourage him. So Cody, um, I don't know if you're in here or not. I don't think he is. He's probably downstairs with the kids. But thank you for all that you have done. Hey, school is almost back in session, isn't it? Is that right? Parent, parents are clapping, students are giving me thumbs down. I thought we could do something today to get all of us in the mood for school being right around the corner, and you need your bulletin, so take out your bulletin. Let's take a test. What do you think? How would that be? And the really cool thing about this is, I don't know if there's really any right or wrong answers, but what I want you to do right now is I want you to write down five actions, behaviors, or habits that move us closer to a right relationship with the Lord. Five actions, behaviors, or habits that move us closer to a right relationship with the Lord. And if you're sitting there and you're saying, look, I'm just the visitor. I'm just here because my spouse made me come. I'm just here because I have to be here. You can still play along with us this morning because I don't know that there really is five right answers necessarily. But I want to just see where we're at as uh, those of us who are striving to be more like Jesus. What are five things we can do in our life? Actions, behaviors, habits that help us get closer to a right relationship with Jesus. And I'm going to walk down amongst you this morning, and I don't want you to be afraid when I do that. Sometimes you wouldn't believe the looks that I get when that plays out. Angie likes it, but someone answer for me. What's one habit? You have one habit? What's that? Surrender. Okay, good. That's a good one. We didn't get that in the first service. Good job. Somebody else? Someone said pray. That's very good. Mark said fellowship. Good. Go to Sunday school. Study the Word. Be in the Word. Dive in. Study. Grow. Yeah. What else? Love your neighbor. Very good. Good answer. What's that? Evangelism. Okay. Share the faith. Greg? What's that? 
Confession. Somebody said that in first service, didn't they? I want to show you my list. Let's put my list up on the screen. I came up with this today. Pray every day. Read and know the Bible. Don't just read the Bible for mere uh, intellectual knowledge, but really know what, the, what God's Word has to say. Give money, a tithe, to the Lord. Serve the Lord in ministry. Now, those first four are kind of what we call it, Sunday school answers. I mean, we expect to see answers like that. I came up with some areas in my life where I think when I practice this behavior, I am closer in a right relationship with God. And one is just watching what I see. Be careful, little eyes. How many of you remember in junior church singing that song? Be careful, little eyes, what you see. I mean, we need to practice that, quite honestly. Because there's a lot of garbage out there. There's a lot of junk out there. Well, what about our language? The, the, the words that we use. And I put no curse words, but we can use words that aren't necessarily on the big list of cuss words, but they're not uplifting. They're not encouraging. Maybe they are demeaning or derogatory. And I think when we use words like that, when we speak language like that, that, that pushes us farther away from a right relationship with the Lord. And then grow spiritually via a mentor. Have someone in your life that is above you spiritually. Someone in your life that is beyond you spiritually. And you try to get whatever you can from them, not to puff them up, not to bring glory to them, but so that you can grow and develop and thrive in your relationship with Jesus Christ. That's a pretty good list, isn't it? Okay, we're going to move on to something else. Growing up in the Taylor household in Chestnut, Illinois, and I'm going to embarrass him because he's in church today, my son Peyton absolutely loved to be able to try to figure out whatever we were watching on TV, who were the good guys and who were the bad guys. If we were watching, say, a baseball game, he learned at an early, early age that the Chicago Cubs are the good guys and the St. Louis Cardinals are the bad guys. He learned it early. When we would watch a movie or a TV show and maybe there were criminals or people out there doing things they shouldn't do, he wanted to know as quick as he could who are the good guys and who are the bad guys. And I've got to tell this story on him. I'm a fan of Matlock. Does anybody in America still watch Matlock? Do you watch it? Okay. Um, it's actually really not that good of a show, but I've seen every episode. And th there was a gal, an actress, that played the part of Ben Matlock's daughter toward the end of the series. It was like a nine-year run, and for the last several years, she was the actress that played his daughter. But two or three years before she became the daughter, they had her in a, a TV movie, two-part episode, where she was actually the villain. She was the murderer, and Ben was able to uncover that mystery. And Peyton, probably six or seven at the time, he could not get it through his mind that she was a bad guy on this episode, but she was a good guy the rest of the time. Bad guys, good guys. Now, you're probably wondering, why do I share that illustration? I think that just like Peyton still does to this day, we're a lot like that. When we look at the world around us, and especially maybe even the Christian world, especially maybe even the world of religion, we have a tendency to categorize people as good guys and bad guys. And the good guys are you all, you're at church on a Sunday morning, you're not at the lake, you're not sleeping in, you're here at church. The good guys are the people that read their Bible and do a lot of praying and give and on and on and on. And the bad guys are the people that maybe don't have anything to do with the faith and are doing things that aren't wholesome and honorable and don't bring glory to God. 
In the first century world, it was a lot like that as well. Good guys versus bad guys in the minds of long-time godly people. And Jesus told a parable. And all summer long, we've been in the midst of a study of parables. And when he told this parable, the people listening to it on that ancient afternoon, I guarantee you they couldn't believe their ears. And I've asked Mackenzie Whitsky, one of our college students, to come. Mackenzie's an awesome gal. She's going to be a sophomore at Olivet Nazarene University, has an incredible heart for Jesus. And I've asked her to come this morning and read this parable to us. Okay, Luke 18, 9 through 14. To some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, and adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. It's the word of the Lord, Luke chapter 18. And I guarantee you, if I could summarize the expressions uh, and the faces of the people listening to this parable, first century world, as Jesus told it, here's what it was. This parable was a shock to the religious system of his day. I promise you more than one person thought to themselves, he, he misspoke. He got the story mixed up. He's been listening to another rabbi and he forgot the punchline. He forgot the story. He doesn't realize that it's the Pharisee that's the good guy and it's the tax collector that's the bad guy. See, it's hard for us to read Luke chapter 18 in 2013 and really understand the emotion, really understand the energy that was played out when Jesus originally told this parable because we live on the other side of history. See, most of us have grown up around the church thinking, what about Pharisees? That they're legalists, that they are bad people, that they're the ones that ultimately push Jesus toward the cross. We look at Pharisees and we don't see good guys, we see bad guys. But in the first century world, as this parable is being told, the Pharisees were as good as it gets, religiously speaking. And when you look at the difference between a Pharisee and a tax collector, you're talking absolute apples and oranges. See, in his day, the Pharisee was a religious success story, while the tax collector was one of the least liked members of society. And there are some awesome Pharisees that are referred to in, in the scriptures. Anybody heard of Nicodemus? Pretty good guy. He was a Pharisee. Joseph of Arimathea? Pretty good guy. He was a Pharisee. And, and this hypothetical Pharisee that Jesus talks about in this parable, he had it all going for him. He was as good as it gets religiously speaking. But the tax collector, on the other hand, it's not an exaggeration to say that tax collectors were literally considered the scum of the earth. People hated them. See, they were considered traitors. 
They were traitors to their own people. They'd made a a secret deal with the Romans, and in exchange for the title of tax collector, it meant that they could literally rob their neighbors. They could literally steal from their neighbors. They could make up the rules as they went along. And you think people don't like the IRS today? You think people are frustrated with taxes in America? You have no idea what it was like first century world, the time of Jesus, when the tax collector came strolling through the village. Those words I I talked about that we shouldn't use, they used them all the time when it came to the life of the tax collector. If these two hypothetical gentlemen, the Pharisee and the tax collector, were running for office, you and I, we would work overtime to get the Pharisee elected. We would give our own money because he was the religious success story. See, the Pharisees' to-do list here in Luke chapter 18, it's a better list than your list. It's a better list than my list, isn't it? Look at his to-do list. He's an impressive religious guy. He's fasting twice a week. Can I tell you, I don't like to fast. Can I tell you, I like to eat. This was birthday week at my house, and I've eaten more this week than any other week in 2013, and I'm loving every minute of it. I just, it's fun. It's enjoyable. Steak, scallops, shrimp, you name it. It's just good. We love to eat. Ice cream, I could preach an entire sermon on, on the blessings of ice cream to Americans today. We love to eat. And this guy's fasting not once, but twice a week? He's giving 10% of everything that he has? I mean, he's saying his prayer as this parable is unfolding. He's got a pretty impressive list. And the tax collector, what kind of list does he have? He's got to just kind of stand toward the back, and he can't even look up toward heaven, and he beats his chest and says, I'm a sinner. That's not impressive. He's not going to get interviewed by the local newspaper reporter with an attitude like that. Pharisee, much more impressive than the tax collector. Religiously speaking, the Pharisee has everything, and the tax collector has absolutely nothing. And yet Jesus is a shock to the system when he says, well done to the tax collector, instead of, the Pharisee. Jesus approves of the sinner, the tax collector, not the Pharisee. And the sinner goes home justified, and the saint just goes home. Wow, that is a shock to the system. And there's a word that's used there in this parable that Jesus used on purpose. And if we're not careful, we just kind of, we skip right over it. It's a rich word. It's a deep word. There's a lot of theology in the word. And the key word is the word justified. The tax collector, the sinner, went home justified. See, justification, big definition here, is God's act of removing the guilt and the penalty of sin while at the same time declaring a sinner righteous through Christ's atoning sacrifice. We sang about that today. Our worship team led us in that. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. That's the gospel, my friends. That's grace. That means you're a good guy forever in God's eyes. And the tax collector, the sinner, went home justified. 
This is one of those parables that you just kind of sometimes scratch your head. You just kind of wonder, what was Jesus really trying to get at? And I think there's four lessons for us to learn in here. And number one is this, I've got to start with it. I wish I didn't even have to go there, but number one is this, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, embrace godly piety. See, the temptation when you read Luke 18 is you're like, well, man, the Pharisee's fasting and he's giving and he's praying and he's doing all the religious stuff and he gets condemned. And the tax collector, man, he's just loving life, stealing from people. He's probably promiscuous. I mean, just your mind wanders and he goes home justified. Well, then I don't need to go to church. I'm not going to give. Serve. I'm not going to be involved. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Embrace Christian piety. Let me just get it on the line this morning. You should give your time, your talent, and your treasures to the Lord. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. It's as biblical as biblical could be. If you find yourself sitting in the pew and you're really struggling with should you give or not, your time, your talent, your treasure, let me just tell you, you should give your time, your talent, your treasure to the Lord. Bottom line, end of statement. There's just no question. You can't read the New Testament and even ponder that question. You should do that. You should embrace the spiritual disciplines. You should be a man of prayer. You should be a woman of prayer. You should be a student of prayer. You should spend time in quiet Christian meditation and reflection. You should seek God's will for your life. Some of us, fasting, we don't even talk about fasting anymore because we like food so much. Some of us, our spiritual life would kind of go to the next level if we would practice fasting once a month. Take lunch, fourth Friday of the month. Take supper, third Monday of the month. Take breakfast, whatever it is, first Saturday of the month. And instead of eating that meal, Spend time in reflection and prayer and Bible study. Just one time a month would change you. So you should embrace the spiritual disciplines. You should avoid the sin that entraps and destroys. See, this Pharisee is so proud of himself because he's not an adulterer, and he's not a thief, and he's not a murderer. And you know what? You shouldn't be involved in that kind of behavior, and neither should I. We should live good, wholesome, holy lives. We should avoid sin that entraps. Number one, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Embrace godly piety. But number two, make sure you don't fall into the trap of doing the right thing for the wrong reason or the wrong motive. Now, what do I mean by that? Should you go to church? Absolutely. Should you give what the Lord's blessed you with? Absolutely. Should you be involved in ministry? Absolutely. But why are you doing what you do? If you're doing it for the applause of men or the applause of women, if you're doing it so people will say, wow, she's impressive, wow, he's really something, you've missed the point. If you go back to the very beginning of the parable that Mackenzie read for us in in verse 9, it says that Jesus told this parable to those who were confident, what's that say, in their own righteousness. They felt really good about themselves. They had it all figured out. They'd mapped out what a successful follower of God looked like, and they were breaking their arm, patting themselves on the back. Be careful you're not doing the right things for the wrong reasons or the wrong motives. What is your motive for being a person of faith? What is your motive for being involved in service? What is your motive? for following Jesus Christ. 
You remember the story in Luke chapter 10? I'm not going to read all of it today, but Jesus was getting ready to head to the house of Martha and Mary, and their brother was Lazarus. And Martha's just like a little busy bee. She's sweeping, she's cleaning, she's cooking, and Jesus comes on in, and Martha's too busy to even spend time with Jesus because she's doing all this stuff that needs to get done. And what, what is the slacker Mary doing? Do you remember? She's kind of hanging out with Jesus, just kind of gazing into his eyes, just listening to the master. And Martha complains to Jesus. And I'm going to paraphrase for you this morning, but he, he basically, she basically says, hey, it's not fair. I'm doing all the work. She's sitting on her can, hanging out with you. Tell her to get off her duff and get to work. That's basically what Luke 10 says, for the most part. And you remember what Jesus said to her? He says, Martha, you're worried and bothered about all these things, and only one thing matters. And Mary has chosen what is better. I hope I don't suffer from Marthaplexy. I hope you don't suffer from Marthaplexy, where you're so busy doing, you miss what it means to be in Christ. Because if we're like Martha, and we're doing the right thing for the wrong reason, that's when bitterness sinks in. That's when lack of recognition just burns us. And before you know it, our spirit is soiled. Our heart is seared. And the joy of the Lord is nowhere to be found. Number three, it's impossible to be in a right relationship with the Lord without humility in your heart and in your life. You go back to the Pharisee, Luke chapter 18, the parable that Jesus told. Look at the number of times that he talks about himself in his prayer to God. I thank you, God, that I am not like the others, and that I don't sin, and that I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all that I get. It's all about his life. It's all about how proud he is with himself. And I will tell you, there's times in my life I've battled this. There's probably times in your life where you've battled this, where something is achieved. There is success. We feel really good about ourselves. And we've got to fight that temptation to say it's all about me. It's all about us. Let's say, for instance, and I'm just going to pick somebody out here. Let's say that Jim Weichel, some of you will know that name, longtime elder at our church, big golfer. Let's say he takes me out for a round of golf. Now, I haven't played golf since 1996, praise the Lord, but let's just say he takes me out to the golf course, and after 17 years of not playing golf, I play golf with him. And he shoots his typical round, you know, two, three under par, something along those lines, and, and I shoot 105, which probably would happen, by the way. If we get done playing and he comes up to me and he just says, Taylor, that was the four hours of my life that I've wasted that I'll never get back again. You might be the worst golfer I have ever seen. How am I going to feel about that? I'm going to feel pretty crummy. I'm going to think I did just waste four hours. Why would I ever want to spend another day with you? But if he comes up and he puts his arm around me and he says, you know, you got a little work to do, but I see promise. I mean, you only sliced 16 out of the 18 times that you addressed the golf ball. You know, you four-putted that one time way back on number 11. You've got some potential. You've got some promise. I'm going to walk away feeling a lot better about myself 
and about my relationship with him. Or let's say that Marla and I decide we're going to take a math test together, and it's a geometry test, and she gets a 100 and I get a 50, okay? If she looks at me and says, you're a moron, who gets a 50 on a test of geometry? Chump change. I'm not going to be very pleased with her. But if she says, you know, you're busy doing the ministry and theology and all of that, and math doesn't really matter anyway, so don't worry about it. Don't worry about it at all. I'm going to feel, I didn't really say that, did I? Math does matter, right? Math matters. Okay, there you go. I, I was going somewhere. I'm not sure where that was, but here's the point. Humility. Humility is a key if we're ever going to, we talked about going to that next level spiritually. I have to learn to master humility in Christ. You have to learn to master humility in Christ. And for many of us, it's still a challenge today. And lesson number four, real quickly, the key to living for the Lord in humility, I really believe, is all about the will. Your will and God's will. See, the Pharisee in, in, uh, in, in this parable that was told today, all about him and his will. And yet we're called to follow God's will, to pursue God's will. Do you know, I was thinking about it this week, it would be incredibly possible to be very active and busy in the kingdom of God and never one time consider what God's will for you might be. It would be. And you know why I think that's possible? Because I've seen it play out in the lives of people. They're doing the good things. They're doing things they need to do. But it's all about their will and not God's will. And it reminds me of Jesus when he went to the cross and he was in the garden. And he didn't want to go to the cross. He wanted a plan B. He'd seen crucifixions. He knew how painful what he was about to endure would be. But you remember what he prayed? He said, not my will, but your will be done. If you haven't figured it out, I think this parable today is really all about what it means to be righteous with God. And Jesus gave us a great taste of what true righteousness looks like early in his ministry, in the middle of the Sermon on the Mountain. And as we conclude that, I'm going to ask Mackenzie to come back, and she's going to read a good chunk of Scripture for us from Matthew chapter 6, smack dab in the middle of the Sermon on the Mountain. Matthew 6, 1 through 18. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they'll be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need even before you ask him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. 
And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. And when you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face, so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father, who is unseen. And your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. You know, I was thinking as she was reading during first service, we could do an entire month just on those 18 verses of Matthew chapter 6. There's so much in there about what being righteous before God the Father really looks like. And, um, and it's 12 o'clock, and I'm not going to, I don't have a lot more that I want to share. But what I love about Matthew 6, just in summary, is that we see outward love being displayed. We see upward prayer being displayed. And we see inward self-denial being displayed. And for some of us, where we're at right now, that, that, that's maybe our takeaway this morning. Is that this week, more than anything else, unbeknownst to anyone else, we need to just reach out and through the love of God in our hearts be a blessing to someone. Maybe they're struggling. Maybe they're going through a tough time. Maybe financially things are dire and we're just going to bless them anonymously. Just be an encouragement to them. For some of us, we can't remember the last time that we spent 15 minutes in prayer. We can't remember the last time that we even pondered what's God's will compared to my will. And so maybe you need an afternoon or an hour or a half hour at Weldon Springs or Clinton Lake or right here in the sanctuary. Our building's open every day just to simply praise God for being the awesome God that he is and ask him what he wants you to do with the rest of your life. And for some of us, self-denial, we don't, we don't even preach self-denial anymore. We don't even talk self-denial anymore. For some of us, that, that's what we need right now to help our spiritual life go to the next level. We, we need to practice self-denial in some aspect in our life. And so my challenge for you this morning, it's really simplistic, but it could be really difficult. I want to challenge you to practice Matthew 6 this week somehow some way. I, I don't even know what that looks like for you. But sometime this week, practice Matthew 6. And when you do it, you will be blessed and your relationship with God the Father will be honored. Let's pray. God, thank you for today. And uh, Father, sometimes we read passages of Scripture and, and they're just hard to figure out. And we think about our lives and we think, man, we're pretty good. And then we read about this Pharisee. And we look at his list. And we realize we're probably never going to make it. I'm trying to earn it. We're never going to make it with a list of religious things. And so this morning right now, it's my prayer that every single one of us, those of us that are brand new to the faith, those of us that have been followers of Jesus for decades, that we would have the heart of that tax collector. That we'd beat our, our chest and we'd acknowledge that we're sinners. We're, we've missed the mark. We've fallen short of your glory. But because of your son Jesus, because of your grace, We've got the greatest gift 
we could ever receive. We love you so much. We thank you for the hope that you bring us through your son, Jesus Christ. And it's his name that we pray. Amen.